I remember when I was a, a young Christian uh, at University of Virginia, uh, I was studying architecture and had no intention of even becoming a Christian uh, uh, until I became a Christian, and God kind of captured my heart. And I remember as a young Christian then, uh, sitting on campus and trying to figure out how my new faith in Jesus Christ intersected with architecture. Like, do do believers design buildings differently than they would otherwise? What principles come to bear? How would it change or shape my career? I was a very driven kid, and, and I, I wondered that. I wrestled with that. And, and this, the Christian scriptures actually do speak a great deal about work, about not just paid employment, but, but our larger calling in life, whether that's uh, uh, to, to, to be an architect or an engineer or a clerk or a social worker or a custodian or a CEO or an artist or an entrepreneur or a homemaker or a barber or an ap- academic or, or, or whatever it is. The, the Bible talks a lot about how we spend our life and particularly about how we work and serve God in our calling. So we're going to look at a passage that actually speaks to that in Deuteronomy chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 19 to 22. It's actually following right on what we read and, and talked about last week. So this is God's word, Deuteronomy uh, 24, beginning in verse 19. God speaks. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, uh, that's a bundle of wheat, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, that's for the immigrant, for the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And when you beat the olives from your trees, don't go over the branches a second time. Leave whatever remains for the alien, for the fatherless and the widow. And when you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the immigrant, for the fatherless, for the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I command you to do this. What do we see here? Most believers at that time in Moses' day as they were preparing to enter into uh, and, and, and occupy the promised land, uh, ancient Israel, most of them, the vast majority of them would be some sort of agricultural worker, farmer. Uh, and we've actually got three different career paths laid out and, and, and with instructions. One is if you're a farmer, the next is if you have an olive orchard, and the last is if you own a winery. How do you go about that kind of work? What do we see here? The first thing we see is that that work is a calling to service beyond our own interests. Uh, we're going to kind of do big picture here because work is its a marker of human dignity. You know, he talks about the blessing of God in the work of your hands in verse 19, that God actually shines his blessing upon labor, upon work, whether it's cleaning toilet bowls or vacuuming or feeding a baby or going grocery shopping, whether it's something you do in a cubicle or whether you start your own business, whether you're in an air-conditioned office or you're a day laborer, it is the blessing of God in the work of your hands because this is is a calling that marks us out as, as creatures that are God-like, that were made. Moses already talked about in Genesis how, how we humans were all made in the image of God. That means we were made to be like God, to reflect him in his create, 
creativity. As a creator, he made us in his image to share that creativity. In his wisdom, he granted us wisdom. In his dominion over all things, he put us in dominion over all other things. We were made in his image and and, and as co-creators under him, we have a calling to, to experience his blessing in the work of our hands. This is something that predates the fall. Before there was sin, before there was pain, before there was sorrow, before jobs stunk, Adam was placed in the garden to work it and to till it. He was a worker. He was a farmer reflecting God who created the universe in six days in Genesis 1. He too was to work six days. Six days you shall labor and do all your rest, uh, do all your work, and the seventh shall be a Sabbath. It's part of the fourth commandment. Jesus, when he came to earth, before he did a single miracle, before he did a single sermon, he spent 30 years working as a carpenter, the labor of his hands, reflecting the glory of God, reflecting the image of God. In Mark 6, he preaches in the synagogue in his own hometown, and everybody's ribbing each other and pointing the finger at him and saying, isn't this the carpenter? Dorothy Sayers says this. She says, what is the Christian understanding of work? It is that work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. It is or should be the full expression of the worker's faculties, the medium in which they offer themselves to God. Thus, our secular work, be it flying jets or changing diapers, becomes something that is divine. Uh, When you're sitting at home, you know, doing your chores, when you're mowing your lawn, when you're, when you're on the freeway, on the way into the office, when you're sitting, you know, in class at WashU, whatever it is for you, understand that what you are doing at that moment is not godless. It is a calling from God. And it is a holy calling to be received with the utmost honor as something that God himself is calling you to. And it's in that context that we can actually enter into relationship with him, experiencing his blessing in the work of our hands. While you're writing that paper, while you're doing that analysis, you know, while you're whacking the weeds in the backyard, that is the work of your hands in which you experience the blessing of God. It's, a, you know, it's, it's the challenge to, to see the sacred even when you're doing the dishes. That God calls you to take out the trash when he calls you into your cubicle on a Monday morning. Uh, Brother Lawrence, back in the 17th century, talked about it. He said, we must, during all our labor and in all else that we do, even in our reading and our writing, holy though they may be, pause for some short moment as often as we can to worship God in the depth of our heart and to savor him in your cubicle on a Tuesday afternoon, taking that moment to take it all in. God, you have called me to this place. And I am here in response to your call. And you are here in this because what you've called me to is something holy. And it's part of something larger. Moses in Genesis in his Genesis creation account, he, he, he presents a cultural mandate that God in the beginning gave humanity instructions, placing those first humans in that garden and saying to those very first human beings, you have a mission on this earth to reflect me as my image, but you have a specific thing I want you to do. He said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we've been really good at that part. And I want you to subdue it. 
And when you look at this larger story from Genesis to Revelation, there is this this parallel between Genesis and Revelation, where in Genesis you see the garden of God, and, and, and at the end of the Bible story, when Christ has redeemed all things, that garden is still there, it's still got the tree, it's still got the river, it's the exact same place, only now it's become the city of God, not the garden. Because we were placed on this earth to establish human civilization, reflecting God's glory and image in us through our work, to take things like, like to take a tree and to be able to envision in that tree pieces of furniture and to, as, as God's image bears with dominion over that tree, to cut that tree down. It'll, others will grow back. It's okay. You can cut down trees. Cut down that tree and, and apply the image of God, the creativity as a co-creator under God, the, the intelligence as one made to image God with intelligence and wisdom, uh, to then apply the human image of God onto that tree to turn it into pieces of furniture so that people can actually sit together and form community and eat a meal together, reflecting the image of God in his community as a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an eternal community and unity, making us in his image that we too would reflect in our community, in our love, in our interconnectedness, the community of God as his image. That's the big story, if you circle out, that, that you could actually take a cow and grab its udders and do things to it. And you could go up onto a mountaintop in Colombia and another valley in Nicaragua and gather some beans and make out of that a mocha latte. That is the image of God. That is God blessing you in the work of your labors. That is a calling from God as the image of God to actually invest in this world to transform it from garden to city. And it's because this world actually matters. You know, as in zeroing out at the big picture, this, was, this is a world that doesn't end as a burnt cinder. It's, it's something where Jesus speaks of, of this world and its future, and he speaks of the renewal of all things. The Bible talks about a renewed heaven and renewed earth, qualitatively transformed. Paul talks about how the creation itself is yearning, waiting for God's sons to be revealed so it can be liberated from its bondage to decay. Not obliterated, but liberated. Uh, you know, when Jesus promised the meek that they would inherit the earth, he wasn't promising them a burnt-up cinder. Though, if they're really meek, they'll be content with a burnt-up cinder. But he's actually, it's the Old Testament promise of the land. It's the same word, that they're going to inherit the land. All those Hebrew prophecies about the coming shalom of God, when there will be universal flourishing, when the Messiah will return, when, when there will be such uh, fruitfulness to our labors that, that the hillsides will be covered with grapes, so much so that they're bursting and forming rivers of wine gathering in pools in the valley below. That Christian vision for work, for your career, for your calling is part of a much bigger calling that humanity has that Moses has already laid out for us in these earlier books. This Christian vision is, is partnering with God to care for his world. You know, in the, the 1970s, a uh, dispensational author, popular author, challenged his generation asking, why polish the brass if the ship is sinking? And yet when we zero out and look at the bigger picture, the biblical 
the biblical narrative, what we see at the end of history is that the, the ship itself has been brought back up to the surface and the brass is eternally polished because what we do in this life and offer to God by faith in response to his calling does actually carry on into the age to come so that at the end of history, what we see in Revelation chapter 21 is the city of God has replaced the garden and all the kings of the earth are bringing their glory into it and all the nations of the earth are bringing their splendor into the city of God. That's their great culture riches. You can imagine people from the Indian subcontinent bringing the Taj Mahal in as tribute to God. You can imagine the Italians, not the French, they stole it when Napoleon invaded Italy, bringing the Italians, bringing the Mona Lisa in and offering it to God. You can imagine Africans bringing the, the, the walls of Zimbabwe in and offering it to God. The Brits bringing in, you know, the, 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 the literature of, of William Shakespeare, the Americans driving 57 Chevys, only they're, they're like battery-powered into the new heavens and new earth. It's a vision where even in the midst of thorn and thistle and pain and sorrow and the seeming meaninglessness of our working lives, this call of God comes saying, I have placed you where you are. What you are doing is noble. It is my calling. I have placed you here. And it is part of a much bigger story. And friends, it's going to last as you respond to God in faith. And yet in this particular passage... There's a burden, a priority that God has in how you go about that calling. Did you pick up on it? Did you notice? He talks about three different kinds of jobs. Some of you, he's saying, you're going to be wheat farmers. Some of you are going to run olive orchards. Some of you are going to own wineries. And there's a triplicate priority he places. He says, if your job, for example, is to be a a wheat farmer, then when you're harvesting your wheat and you realize that you've just lost 20% of it on the ground, do not go back and pick it up. Because he's saying, I want you to build your career trajectory in a way that advantages certain classes of people. He talks about widows. He talks about orphans. And he talks about immigrants. He's saying, I want you to build your career in such a way that you are opening doors for the poor and the marginalized, for people who cannot, they can't get, they can't, they can't build their own career. They need somebody to help them. They need not a hand out so much as a hand up. And this is enabling them then to work by going and collecting food. It's opening doors. Now, some of you aren't going to be wheat farmers. He says, some of you, however, in contrast, are going to run olive orchards. And if that's your career trajectory, he's saying when you're harvesting your olive olive trees and you're shaking them and all the ripe olives fall down, he says, pick them all up, go. That's That's your profit. That's what you've been working for. That's what's going to get you by another year. And all the ones that are still on the tree because they're not ripe yet, leave them there. Because I want you to build your career trajectory in such a way as to open doors for other people. He says, some of you, however, you're going to run wineries. It's right there. You're going to have a winery. That'd be fun. And he says, when you do that, and you collect all your grapes, and you go and make your wine, the ones that are still on the trees, leave them there. Because I want you to build your career trajectory in a way that opens doors for the marginalized, for the poor, for the immigrant, for the widow for the orphan. Whatever your career. It's three times. I mean, Hebrew, in Hebrew, when you repeat something three times, you are saying, this is the most important thing. It's like when 
the angels stand before God. They don't say he's holy. They say you are holy, holy, holy. And here in triplicate, to drive it home, he's saying do not build your career to advantage just yourself. Do it to guard the interests of others. And it fits with the Bible's emphasis on human solidarity, that you are your brother's keeper. You are responsible to open doors for them. You are responsible to be a blessing to others. God's saying, I don't want you to maximize your productivity. I don't want you to maximize your profits. I don't want you to aim to go as high up the ladder as you can. I want you to prioritize the poor, widows, orphans, immigrants, protected, biblically protected classes of people. Robert Bella says this, He said, we're moving to an even greater validation of the sacredness of the individual person, describing Western culture, but our capacity to imagine a social fabric that would hold individuals together is vanishing. The sacredness of the individual is not balanced by any sense of the whole or concern for the common good. And he suggests that to make a real difference, there would have to be a reappropriation of the idea of vocation, the idea of a calling, a return to a new way, uh, to the idea of work as a contribution to the good of all and not merely a means to my own advancement. See, to pursue your career, we have a calling here to do it in such a way to engage every day in work that deliberately opens doors for others, that provides work, that benefits the weak, the marginalized, the poor. So what does that look like? Um, For you, only you can figure that out. Uh, But Don Flo is one example. He owns 31 car dealerships. He's based out of North Carolina. I don't know if you've heard of him. And one of the things he noticed is, uh, you know, Salesmen in a car dealership, they, they, they work off commission, and so it's, it's definitely to their advantage to, to drive the price as high as possible to make you think you're getting a good deal when you're actually not. And, and what Don noticed was that there were certain people that that was system, uh, systemically uh, advantaging and disadvantaging because he found that, in general, the people who could really drive the price down because they were confident, strong negotiators, because they were the empowered class of people in our culture were, guess who? (laughs) White males. And he found when he looked at the books of his own business that women and people of color were consistently paying thousands of dollars more for the same product. And what he did with his 31 car dealerships is he just said, we're not going to have any negotiations. I'm going to give a good price that is big enough that we can actually run our business and make some profit, but low enough that I'm actually going to undercut most of my competition. And I'm going to do it because I want everybody to have the same access, regardless of whether they are empowered in their negotiating skills. Uh, That's him saying, I'm going to do my job in a way that doesn't just advantage myself. I think of a real estate developer who who makes it his point to develop affordable three-bedroom apartments on South Grand because he sees an influx of refugees and migrants coming into St. Louis and their families, and they have to have three-bedroom units, and there just aren't enough good quality three-bedroom units. That's advantaging the poor. I think of the homemaker who sees a trip to the park not as a time to spend an hour on Facebook on her phone, but actually sees it as an opportunity to engage with other parents even across divides of race and class. I think of the mortgage agent who who goes way beyond the call of duty, making phone calls and pulling strings to help get a family into a mortgage that they can afford so they can start building generational wealth. 
I think of the executive who takes a fall for a subordinate. So the subordinate doesn't get fired when they screw up, but they actually get covered and protected because their boss goes to the CEO and says, this was my failure. I'm sorry. I'm taking steps to make sure it doesn't happen again. And he takes the blame and protects his, his employee. I think uh, not just about those who are physically poor, but, but uh, um, a vision that actually spreads to all of those around us. Uh, Andre Crouch, uh, for example, talks about his wife, Catherine, who is a professor of physics. And what she will do in her lab, rather than just viewing her employees as, as uh, work units to get as much labor out of as possible, uh, she will actually uh, go and play classical music in the lab to foster creativity and give a sense of beauty. She will have her workers over to her home so that it's not so, so that there's there's actual relationships. She will bring her kids to work on certain days so as to communicate to her employees that uh, uh, that that um, their work should not be at the expense of their family. Uh, you know, she goes about. Uh, um, Modeling rest. She's not in, she's not working 80 hours a week, but she's actually modeling boundaries so that her employees also can respect their own boundaries. Um, but, you know, as you gain uh, a voice, and, you know, you may be early in your career and you can't really do all that. You just have to kind of stick with it until you actually get to a point where you can be more intentional in setting the tone. But as you gain your voice and hit your stride, uh, this, this calling, this biblical vision of offering your work to God, it's it's not done just by sticking God's name on what you do, but actually uh, forming it in the context of a calling and a response to God. If you if you haven't read Tim Keller's book Every Good Endeavor, and uh, and you're wrestling in the workplace and uh, or even in the home trying to figure out what this is all about and whether it's really worth it, I, I cannot recommend the book highly enough. He actually begins with a quote from John Coltrane, the American saxophonist and jazz composer. Uh, it's from a, the liner notes to A Love Supreme. He writes, During the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, he writes, In gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make other people happy through music. I feel this has been granted through God's grace. All praise to God. This album is a humble offering to him, an attempt to say, thank you, God, through our work, even as we do in our hearts and with our tongues. May he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. It's a calling from God to serve beyond our own self-interest. So why is this hard? This is hard because we tend to view work uh, whether that's, uh, and in fact, we tend to view everything as a means of personal validation. Uh, I, I'm probably not the only Enneagram 3 in the room. We're, most, we're notorious for this. Uh, we are driven. We get results. We get things done. We will crawl over other people's backs, and at the end, we will be either miserable if we fail or proud as possible if we succeed. Um, for you, maybe it's not the workplace. Maybe it's your relationships. Maybe it's your marriage. But we tend to view what we do as a means of personal self-validation. So we, we look at our accomplishments sort of as a fig leaf to cover over our nakedness and shame. Uh, and it, it brings up tricky questions about why do I do what I do? The question I have to ask myself and in my ministry, because I get paid to be a Christian, uh, not great at it, but, uh, you know, in my ministry, that's my job. And even in pastoral ministry, the same challenge comes up because you, your motives are always unclear. Yeah, I want to serve God, but I also want to be effective and successful. 
um, yeah, I want to help people and, and help them get the gospel, and, and I want them to think I'm really awesome for helping them get the gospel. You know, it's that constant confusion. I, the question I need to ask is not what will make me uh, either the most money in a workplace, which ministry is not that, or give me the most status. If I'm in ministry because I want to feel important, I'm going to use other people. I'm going to use you in order to make myself feel important. And when I'm successful, I'm going to pat myself on the back. And it's the same with your career. It's the same with your calling. You can do it with your family. You can do it with anything. Uh, is it, We are idol factories. That need to prove myself is so powerful to be someone, to make an impact, to accomplish something. It can be forceful. And then when somebody gets in my way, that drive to personal validation through what I do will undermine my ability to love that person because I'm going to view them as a problem to be fixed or an obstacle to be removed rather than a person to be loved and served and cared for because they're made in God's image and I am their pastor. Maybe this sounds familiar to some of you. And I've, I've watched other guys, even in ministry, just completely burn out, uh, you know, because they're so driven. They need to be successful in their ministry to validate their existence so they can feel like a man. And what ends up coming out are all of the lies and all of the deception and the political plays and the spin doctoring and saying one thing to this person and something different to this person and trying to control the message and trying to control the narrative. And there's so much anxiety, so much fear, so much dread, so much anger, so much pride until the whole thing comes crashing down. We tend to use our callings as means of personal validation. The better question, instead of asking what's going to give me the most status, is how, with my existing abilities and opportunities, can I be of greatest service to other people, knowing God's will and human need? Uh, because it's got to be all about other people and their needs. And what gets in the way of that is my need for personal validation. Uh, but you can't even ask these kinds of questions if it's all about justifying yourself. And that drive uh, ultimately destroys us. And somebody's going to pay the consequences. Um, remember one pastor talking about a young guy, uh, married, had kids in his church who he was very driven and he was going to be successful in whatever he did. And, and he was talking to his pastor one day and he said, you know, here's my plan. I've got, I've got it mapped out. I am going to take the next 15 years and give everything I have to building my business. I am going to pour I'm going to be all in. I'm going to make a lot of money and have a nice house and some nice cars and set me and my family up for, for the rest of our lives. I'm going to give it 15 years and then I'm going to quit. And his pastor said, I believe you. And I believe in 15 years you're going to have the house and you're going to have the cars. But your kids are going to be gone and your wife is going to hate you. Ten years later, that pastor found out he was wrong. It didn't take 15 years. It took 10 years. And as he walked up to the front door of this man's McMansion and walked through the door, what had actually happened is he got it backward because the wife was gone and the kids hated him. Uh, it gets in the way when we try to build our identity uh, uh, to validate ourselves through what we do. So what's the point? Our work, our callings, they're from God. They're holy callings to serve people beyond ourselves. And what's going to get in the way of that is your driven need to validate yourself through what you do. So how is it actually possible? Well, in this passage, 
God points them back to their story. He points us back to our story. It's, it's repeated. He had said it in verse 18 uh, before what we just read, and he says it again in verse uh, 22 at the very end. He says, remember you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. He points back to this. We don't need to validate ourselves. He points us back to a story of redemption, which actually gives us a better validation than you could ever get through what you do. Uh, you know, Moses had written of Abraham who believed God and his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Mo- uh, the Bible talks about David who, who could say, blessed is the man whose sins the Lord will never count against him. This story of, 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 of freedom from bondage, of having not been the people of God and being made the people of God, of being invalid slaves to the Egyptians, to being validated by God himself as his people. It's what we see in the New Testament developed by St. Paul when he talks about his own story, about his own work, his own ministry. He says in Philippians 3, what we read, he talks about if anybody had reason for confidence in the flesh, that is through what I do. I had more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal and persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. He said, I had it made. I had it all to be a a Hebrew scholar like him, he had accomplished everything and everybody was recognizing him and validating him. And you can hear this self-validating drivenness behind his career. And yet he goes on to say, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them trash that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here's the, here's the clincher. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but having that righteousness which comes from God and is by faith. He's talking here about the imputation of Christ's righteousness. He's talking about what Martin Luther called the great exchange that God made him who knew no sin uh, uh, to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of Christ. It's, it's, a, it's a better validation, a validation that comes from the Lord who redeemed you when you were a slave. It's that picture of, of Jesus who all his life is righteous. He spends 30 years as a carpenter always doing what pleases the Lord, always pleasing God, being so completely righteous. And I've spent all of my years sinning against God in word, thought, and deed. I have not loved God with all of my heart, soul, mind, or strength for 10 seconds my entire life, which means I have been committing the the greatest sin by by violating the greatest commandment my entire life nonstop. And in in, in this amazing, miraculous vision of salvation, all of my guilt transfers to Jesus and he bears it. He bears it on the cross. He's crushed, judged, condemned, and beaten down for it. And then when we believe all of Christ's righteousness transfers from him to you so that you, even though still a sinner, can be altogether worthy in the presence of God. That means, friends, that if you have Jesus, you have a better validation than you're going to get through your workplace. You have a better validation because you have the resume of Jesus Christ. It has your name on the top, and it says before God the Father that you fed the 5,000, that you raised Lazarus from the dead, that you always did what pleased the Father. That's a lot more than being forgiven. That's a deeper validation. See, to be forgiven, it's like, uh, you know, it's the story I always tell about, you know, you, 
go down the street to, to Bank of America, and uh, you know you've you've totally like missed so many payments on your mortgage it's in default, and you've got all these loans and they're all and all these lines of credit and they're all maxed out, and you've got millions of dollars in debt, and there's no way you don't have a job, you have nothing in your bank account, you got checks overdrawn, and then on top of that you got all these fees, and you walk in there and. Uh, or I walk in there and I, I go up to the counter and, and they pull up my account and they say, you better have a seat over there. And he points you to over one of the chairs with the little desks and you go sit there. And, and the guy there, he's, he's, he's really nice. He says, oh, well, uh, Mr. Johnson, uh, Pastor Johnson, uh, we've got some problems I see, but you know, we're just going to go ahead and, 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 and cancel out all these loans and, and, and clear your mortgage and, and, and zero you out and we'll cover all the fees and uh, you can go now. We'll just take care of it all. And you walk out the door and you're kind of amazed. This is pretty good service for Bank of America. Uh, and yet as you get to, uh, as you get to your car, there are three things that are true of you. One, you are forgiven at that point. You have no debts. Two, you are bankrupt. And three, Bank of America doesn't ever want to see your face again. That's forgiveness. And some of you are stuck in a rut right now because you know that God has forgiven you, but you have not gotten the other half of the equation. It hasn't at home. It hasn't sunk into your heart. It's not. You haven't had the aha moment when you realize that you are more than forgiven. You are righteous in the eyes of God, and that is an eternal validation that nothing can compete with. Righteousness is when the Bank of America CEO, who happened to be in St. Louis that week, comes rushing out to your car saying, Sir, 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 please forgive me. We made such a mistake. That person was new there. They should not have treated you that way. That was wrong. That was not what we intended. Please come back in. And he drags you into to, to, to the bank and they go up to the top floor and he takes you down the hallway, nice paneled wood hallway with portraits on the walls. And he goes to the corner office and, he, and it's his office and he takes you in and he sits you down in his chair behind his big walnut desk with his windows on both sides. And he says, that should not have happened. We are so sorry. I'm just going to sign the bank and all of its assets over to you now. And we have a guy in the lobby with some oil paint and a canvas. He wants to capture your likeness for the lobby. That's righteousness. See, forgiveness says you can go now. Righteousness says you can come now. And what we have in the story of salvation in the Bible is a better validation, a validation that gets you off your career treadmill so that you stop looking at your job, your ministry, your family, your parenting as your worldly success. You stop looking at those things to make you feel the way that Jesus wants to make you feel. When Jesus became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he did it for your sake so that he might develop in his life as a carpenter a righteousness that he could then credit to you. He was making clothes with which he could then clothe you, robes of worth and honor, an unremovable suit of worth and honor and blessing. Remember, you were slaves, and the Lord your God redeemed you. The Seattle Seahawks. I was raised a football fan. We didn't have baseball in D.C. when I was growing up. But the Seattle Seahawks were down, but they were not out. It was toward the end of the game, and they had a chance to pull off a victory. They were a few points behind, but they were within striking distance, and momentum was on their side, and it looked like they were about to snap victory from the jaws of defeat. Time was running out, but the Seahawks were probably going to win until... It happened. Every Seattle fan on the planet watched as a crucial snap near the end of the game was badly botched. 
Those who witnessed it said it appeared it was the fault of the player who snapped the ball. And after a tough loss, quarterback Russell Wilson was interviewed by a reporter. The reporter asked Russell what happened, and Russell uh, you know, stared into the camera and told the reporter that, it, that the error was on me. After talking more about the game, he reiterated that the mess-up was his own fault, not the fault of the player who snapped the ball. He fully took the blame for the mistake and for the loss of the game. He took it on himself, and he was insistent in the face of furious fans who were angry about the play. Those in the know knew what had just happened on national television before all these emotional fans sporting from a loss that could have been avoided, the star quarterback just redefined the narrative by taking the blame. And in no uncertain terms, he laid the failure and all its consequences on himself alone instead of on the player who failed. He took the blame because his career is not all about his personal and professional advancement. It's not all about validating himself. He is not building an identity for himself. It's about serving his teammates at his own professional expense. And so he took the blame, a very costly blame, in order to protect his friend. And Russell learned that from Jesus. You see, Wilson is a follower, a committed follower of Christ. And that's what Jesus did for you. Jesus took the blame for your failed snap. And before all the watching world and the Father himself, he said, I am taking responsibility for your sin. I am taking responsibility for your idolatry. I am taking responsibility for Greg Johnson and for every other believer from Adam to the end of the age. I am taking all of that on me. And the punishment he took was so immense, it was worse anything than we could ever experience as the Father turned his face away. But he did it so that he could clothe you with righteousness and embrace you as a brother, as a son or daughter of the Most High God who is altogether worthy. Friends, if you have Jesus' resume, there is nothing you're going to do to embellish that resume. You are already worthy, and the Father himself is pleased with you now. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the pleasure that you take in your Son and the pleasure you take in us, your children. Uh, Lord, bless your name. We thank you, and we honor you now. I pray, Father, for this meal, this sacrament, that you would bless the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, that you would preach the good news to us, that as you wash our feet, we might be able to turn around and wash the feet of those around us. Because, Lord, you've taken us off the treadmill, and you've given the freedom, the freedom to fail, the freedom to succeed, the freedom to put others before our own interests, because that's what you've done for us. We give you thanks through Christ who we worship together with you and your spirit. Amen.